I wish somebody would love me like that. I would be really stoked to get a letter like that. Like if it was from a chick, but written by a dude and still from a chick, that would still be sick. But it would have to be a sensitive dude. It would have to be like a dude like you. Uh, back in 2013, Chris Pratt said trans rights, I believe. Oh, God. I can't believe... <laughs> Uh, it's really surprising to see him in this movie, her. I, I had no idea. I totally isn't forgot. It, isn't that bizarre? It's sort of like, um, yeah, because he's changed so much since then. And like, if you haven't, this is a movie I think too, that like people forgot about, right? Oh yeah. I feel like it's totally forgotten oddly. Um, but we have not forgotten it cause it's kind of in our wheelhouse, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, a very specific sector i think of millennials that have not have not forgotten it you had to be a certain age and have a certain predilection if that makes sense (laughs) it's an interesting word for the series of episodes but yeah sad boy sad boy millennial emo movie (laughs) Um, so this is the last episode of risque romance which has been kind of a long marathon uh season cycle for us because a lot's been going on uh let's do well we gotta intro the show Hey, yes. this is Film Trace, guys. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a movie from conception to production all the way to release and reception. It is the final episode of Risque Romance. We are covering two films. Uh, the main film is Bones and All, which came out uh, late in 2022. Uh, and then our chaser film is going to be Her, uh, which you heard that clip from, uh, which came out in 2013. Where to begin, Chris? Where I'm, to begin on this journey? Because this is the end of our journey. <laughs> right. So we kind of have to really sum it all up this episode. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I think maybe we should do that up top this time, especially because sure. this is our, I believe, our first uh, sequence cycle of episodes where we, instead of starting with the the new movie and going uh, yeah. backward, this time it. we reversed it because we, we knew we wanted to do Bones and All, but we wanted to get going on recording. Yeah. Um, so we began actually with Stanley Kubrick's Lolita from 1962 um paired that with taste of honey once again thank you for introducing me to that lovely movie Great movie isn't it yeah. yeah 1961 british film um kitchen sink realism uh some landmark representation of lgbtq plus communities and characters and then uh in the 70s we came to terence malick's badlands which actually bones and all turns out was has been often compared to yeah um, definitely uh, and Harold and Maude. Then in the 80s, we focused on Valley Girl and My Beautiful Laundrette, once again, looking at you know everything from class to uh, LGBTQ plus issues. Um, same thing with Bound and Poison Ivy, which brought back the whole Lolita trend in filmmaking. And last but not least, before today's episode, Brokeback Mountain and Secretary from the 2000s. Uh, it has been quite... The journey, and I think uh, we knew that this was going to be a very difficult topic to to look at through the course of you know the latter half of the 20th century and early 21st century cinema. Um, we had some great guests along the way. Gary from Cinema Shock talked Badlands with us. Our good friend Bridget from Screen Time talked uh, about the 80s with us. Lillian Crawford. Uh, LGBTQ plus cinema expert talked about Bound and Poison Ivy with me. And then Amanda Jane Stern, uh, writer, director, star of uh, her own movies, um, talked to us about the 2000s. And I was actually, you know, maybe this episode is going to blow everything up, but I, 
I've been very impressed with how we've been able to talk about such delicate subject matter. Not to toot our own horn, but... Well, it sounds like you're tooting our own. (laughs) Well, I think it's funny... um, I, I wanted to do something in romance, right? Because it's something we have, it's a genre we really haven't covered on the show all that much. Mm-hmm. Like, even with the first five seasons, we didn't really do a ton of romance films, even though, I don't know, I really like romance movies. Um, and it's also, you know, I think we, uh, we chose a mountain to climb that was like difficult and it's fun to do. That's why I chose Lolita as the first movie, right? It's like, you know, you, if you have to walk through a minefield, you have to sort of be limber and dynamic and, <laughs> think in a different way you know if you had chosen like oh you know we end up like talking about her which is such a like a movie that's so easy for us to talk about um but it's also it's not just that it's not the romance part but also just two straight white dudes yeah right Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like you know i think in this exploration we wanted to sort of step into different perspectives and kind of see see the idea of romance from different viewpoints and i think i think we managed to at least you know we we did it to some degree um but it's always hard to really dive into something like this and i think we are pulling something out of it uh, for at least us right yeah kind of totally. reviewing these movies and um i'm glad that we chose to end with bones and all and her because i think that like they're both i don't know they feel they seem easy to think about and discuss there's not a lot of like hurdles that i have to jump over to talk about bones and all or her like there's almost like it's kind of reflecting back on us a little bit and Interesting. how we view romance and how we view love and stuff like that um i mean first of all do you want to dive into bones and all do you want to start you know rip off that band-aid yeah yeah we we've been keeping from each other for a bit now our true <laughs> opinions on this film um so let's let's just get that out of the way and then That's we can good. you know do the whole tracing thing and talk about where this movie came from and how it uh, managed to get into theaters and how it's been doing the past month um which i think is uh, maybe a little different than perhaps people were anticipating back when we chose to end the season on this movie back in November. So what, what what, hit hit me, Dan, what, how did you feel about bones and all tell your journey? What made you interested in having this be kind of like the touchstone movie? Uh, I threw it up out there along with a lot of other suggestions, but you seem to latch onto it pretty, pretty easily. Well, there's a lot of buzz. I forget what film festival it came out at, um, but there was a ton of buzz surrounding it. Um, and I don't know if that's because like uh, Tilly Chalamet has such a following. Like he's basically like the Tiger Beat of 2023. Like he's on the <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like he's just like that guy. Uh, and so there's so much buzz, especially on film Twitter. Uh, and Luca Guadagino, um, who's amazing, call me by your name. You know, it's this is his follow up. I think it's his follow up to that, isn't it? Technically, yeah. Um, no, uh, no it's Suspiria. Oh, Suspiria came after. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is also fun. Um, crazy as hell, but I like him. I like his style. Call Me by Your Name is one of my favorite movies. Cannibal aside, boom. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. I just felt like I also felt like this. So I was interested in it. But I don't choose films just because I'm interested in something. I wanted to choose something that was going to be zeitgeisty, that sure. like younger people, Zoomers would be into, and like just fast. Because I always want to like figure yeah. out what's going on. We're, we're endlessly chasing the Zoomer audience on this show. A hundred percent. You know, chasing <laughs> the dragon, as they say. Um, and so, 
Yeah, I, I was just, and I, the concept of it was so fascinating to me. Like, I get there's been so many of these sort of like, I for some reason lumped it in with like zombie movies. Is that wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like immediately, it was like, is this like a zombie love movie? Didn't we already do this? Right. Um, they're not really zombies. They're just, you know, people that uh, <laughs> like a certain type of meat. Um, and you know, I, I don't know. I just, uh, it felt like it was going to be, have a lot of cultural cachet and all that kind of stuff. And, but it doesn't. It, no. it just doesn't like it, this thing landed not with a thud. It costs like about twenty million dollars to make production budget wise. Obviously, a lot more to market. Um, it's only done about fourteen point five million dollars worldwide, mm-hmm. so it has not set the world alight um, in terms of an audience or financially. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I, my initial are we diving into our opinions? Do you want my opinion of this movie? Yeah, yeah I need that before we go anywhere okay. else. Otherwise, no, it's just going to drive me nuts. <laughs> Um, I didn't love it. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Uh, <laughs> it was right in sort of the style that Luca loves, that very sort of naturalistic flowing shots, long takes, beautiful music, um, great acting. He's so good with actors, especially Timothy. Um, and there's a lot to love about this movie. Number one, it's very long. It's 130 minutes long. It could have been cut. You could have cut 30, 40 minutes out of this thing easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there is just, there's so much on the surface audio wise and visual wise that you just is there and apparent and it's very good. The story is complete trash. <laughs> I mean, there's not even a story. Like, I don't even know. It, the, the crazy thing is this thing is based on a novel, YA novel, which makes way more sense because yeah. you're like, YA novels are usually not that good, actually, from a literature perspective. High art, whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> and, um, but yeah, it's just, this story's not there, which is so, I don't know. It's disappointing because I think all of the pieces are there. They're just not arranged in the right way. What did you think about this, Chris? Yeah, no, I mean, I... I I knew I didn't see it on your top 10 list of 2022. So oh, I, yeah, I, I, that was a little bit of a spoiler for me, but I mean, I'm, you know, on one hand, I wish I could argue with you more uh, to make yeah. our <laughs> closing episode a little more climactic, but I, I can't, I, it's, it's not a great movie. Um, it's not bad. I don't no, know. It's, 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 I don't know if that's true. It might be a bad movie. <laughs> it might be a bad movie because like, think about it this way. Um, do you ever want to watch again? No. It's too long. It's boring as hell. Um, but that's the thing is like the, a movie. That's a truly bad movie. I might want to watch again. Um, okay. I see what you're saying like Cause, bad. Cause yeah. they're fascinating to me either, either because they're like so bad, they're entertaining or because just because like, you know, it, it elicits a negative emotion for me. And like, I didn't actually necessarily, I don't think I liked the Suspiria movie remake, but I mean, that's also was, not very good. Like the, <laughs> like the last half hour of that movie is a complete. I mean, compared to whatever, I get it. The opening hour of that movie is super fun, though. Uh, Suspiria. Um, yeah, but, it's you, just, but you also didn't like Call Me by Your Name. I know. I haven't seen it yet, so. <laughs> the, the whole. Yeah. I, mean, I was. Movie. I Have was in Columbus yet. Oh yeah, I've seen Columbus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're just you're, now. You're just listing movies that you like that you've been wanting me to see. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's like, like romantic movies. Um, yeah, no. Columbus is great. Why did we do uh, Columbus? So that, I guess there's nothing risque about it. There's, yeah, uh, no, nothing controversial. Like architecture and small towns. Is that risque? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's that's one of the issues I think with this whole kind of subgenre that we've been tackling is that yeah. it it is very difficult to nail because yeah. I mean, love is. A, 
you know, suppose is, you know, yes, it's got tragedy embedded into it, but also has like this wholesomeness embedded into it. And so a lot of these films, and I think including bones and all with as extreme and <laughs> ridiculous as a premise as it has, it's still trying to like hit that like wholesomeness mark. Right. And yeah. It, it, like, you know, even though they're, you know, these damaged individuals with this horrible predilection, to use your earlier word, yeah. um, they they still, you know, have a, a true connection with each other. Um, and but that I mean, we didn't even do a log line for this one because it's, oh, yeah. it's just so it's so bare bones, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, two cannibals that meet each other and fall in love <laughs> and try to escape the law. Uh, and yeah, other dude, cannibals. Uh, oh my god! Don't even get me started, Mark Rylance. Um, oh boy, I, come on! I thought he was—he's <laughs> such a good actor, though. I hate him so much. God, is he a good actor? Hey, Chris, have you seen Bridge of Spies yet? <laughs> yes, yeah, the same exact character, except in this one, he eats people. <laughs> I'm he's quiet and weird. Yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. The long line is um, well, you know. I think that the interesting part about this, and it's funny, people said this about the book too. Like apparently the book start, starts out really, really strong and like world building. And then it like really falls apart in the last third or whatever, which mm-hmm. I think you can say the same thing in the movie. Um, yeah. You know, you got a young girl who is, yeah. um, oh, yeah, I'll say the opening is incredible. I really like the opening of What's this the movie opening again, where <laughs> she, 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 the party? she makes, she makes friends and goes to their party and yeah. yeah and then and, it's, and then uh, someone the loses g- the digit per se, right, um, right? And I like that too. Yeah, like she she gets abandoned by her father. Um, you know, her mother's part of the whole sort of situation. It might have been passed down to her. Maybe it's genetic mm-hmm. that she has this sort of taste for human flesh. She goes on the run looking for her mother, and then she comes across um, Timothy's character. Uh, I mean, the lead of this movie is really Taylor Russell, right? She's yes, fun- yes. I think she's phenomenal. She's such a. Uh, no, no, no. See, uh, here we go. We're going to get into it now. Cause okay. I think she. I don't know. She played this part so well to me. What don't you like about her? I points. Well, I, 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 maybe I shouldn't be blaming it on her because so Luca, I'm just going to call him Luca G because I am not good with (laughs) pronouncing this guy's name. Um, he, uh, saw Taylor Russell in waves, which it was, Uh, did you ever see waves? I've I've never seen waves. Okay. It looks amazing. I love it. It's a really great movie. It's you, there. There's. It has its haters, and you know, it arguably has. They have reason for disliking the film, but I really was ca- captivated by it. It's by the guy who did It Comes at Night, uh, Trey Edward Schultz. Oh yeah, okay, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, and she's phenomenal in it. And she, she, she really like has this kind of, it's that it kind of, it almost feel, I feel like this is, this is a, a common thing. It's been a common thing for sent for over a century now in cinema, right? It's like that ingenue quality, like her inexperience actually helped her kind of fit into that role, you know, where, sure. because, because she is so fresh and so green with it, um, it just comes across as really like pure and, um, uh, special, um, because it's like, you know, minimal trained actorness. Um, and we'll get into that when we talk about Joaquin Phoenix. Um, but, uh, <laughs> she, but then in this movie, and I, I think the other thing is like in movie waves, she has a character that has so much, um, and it, you could say the same thing about bones and all, except it never really delves. Right. It just is all like surface level. Yeah. Because she, and like, and there's glimmers of, I think definitely promise in her performance, but I just, I don't know if the script ever lets her really do anything other than just be like vaguely tortured. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, would, I think that's fair. But I think she does a lot with what she's got given there. Like, yeah. I, even on, like, on the surface, it's just there's something... Uh, she has a screen presence, and I, I hate when that's people say It's like, what the hell does that mean? But I don't right. know what it means. It's just a term that we use for something that we feel when we see somebody on screen. Like that's that's <laughs> yeah. literally what it is. It, you can't put it. You can't be more specific about it. She just, I don't know. I think she really, she she flowed well with Lucas' style, which does tend to be um, flowy. It's loose, super long takes, and it's just like. She could be in it. I think if she could she could stay in the part long enough in those scenes to really inhabit what was going on. Hmm. Um, and Tim, I mean, Chalamet is the same way. Yeah. He's, I mean, what do you think about him in this? He is such a talented young guy. Yeah, like, I, I think it's hard. You, I want to be a naysayer, but I, it's really hard to be. Um, it's super he, hard to be. He just, it's, he's really... And I mean... That's the other thing about this movie is like, I think not only did he show once again, that there's a reason why he's kind of becoming the face for his generation, but also, uh, he had a lot of say he was a producer on this for, this is his first time producing, um, one of the movies that he starred in. And so, and he like had a lot of say in the script and the, on um, the, the kind of, uh, uh yeah, improv moments true. throughout shooting and giving feedback on dailies and stuff. And like, it, once again, not a good movie, but like it, he made some interesting choices. Like he was, uh, beh- basically the brains behind that whole scene where they, they listen to the, the guy's records and he finds the kiss record, which was yeah, actually one cool. of the more like kind of interesting and like more than just like vaguely tortured, uh, vibe that you get throughout so many scenes in this movie. Um, and he also like, uh, had a big part in, um, uh, the, the music, um, both in, uh, giving notes back to, uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross who have, you know, made it to the point to the, like, they're just as, you know, reliable as some of the more classical, classically trained, uh, composers in the film industry, uh, as well as like the pop songs, like, um, Leonard Cohen and uh, um, Joy Division and all that stuff. Like it, and we should note that this movie takes place in 1988. Is that right? 89. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's a period. Yeah, piece. yeah. And so like that part feels like really in, like it, lovely and, and lived in. But it's just like it's the it's it's the whole thing. Like I don't know if there's another director besides Terrence Malick that can like have just vibes be something more than just vibes. <laughs> Is that ridiculous? It's not like the ultimate Zoomer filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but vibes, dude. All comes back around. Um, right. There's yeah. There's a there's a lot to even just uh, digest uh, with the conception and production of this movie. Yeah. I think the thing that stuck out. One of the things that stood out to me is in these interviews, um, and that we can say this because we were both alive in the Midwest in the 1980s. We grew up mm-hmm. in the Midwest in the 1980s. Yep. Uh, they keep on saying Midwest in the interviews. And, but that, that's a hint. Okay. So if you're not from America or whatever, the Midwest is a, you know, pretty, uh, precisely defined area of the country. Um, and this movie sort of takes place in it sometimes. Like it does take place in Minnesota, right? That's where our mother is and stuff like that. But it plays like in Kentucky, Maryland, which are both not part of the Midwest. Right. Virginia. Um, yeah. And then there's like other shots and stuff that look like more like the Great Plains uh, mm-hmm, areas and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think the one thing that stood out to me, and I think like one of the reasons that Timothy took this movie is he's sort of like, oh, Luke is going to make this like Midwestern movie. He's going to do whatever he wants, like in the middle of America. He's like really excited about that concept. 
that's the one thing here from the start that seems probably not super smart is that Luke is trying to make a movie about a place he doesn't know anything about in terms of just like 1980s America. He doesn't know anything about that'd be like right. me making a movie about 1980s Italy. Like I don't know anything about it. I might be interested in it and it might have a story to work off of, but it's just going to be very hard to capture it. Does he capture it? No, he doesn't. No. Like he captures a fairy tale version of what he thinks it was like back then, but it wasn't like that at all. I mean, it just wasn't like sure the same cars and maybe the same haircuts and same clothes, but the way people act is not the same. Yeah. And so like right there, it's sort of like, okay, I I'll give him creative license to do that. Um, but then there's but then this he, whole thing. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, but like, if you're going to do that, like you said, it, it has to be some kind of like, that's the thing is the movie tried to do the whole, like have its cake and eat it too. Like it mm-hmm. wants it to be this like distorted, fantastical version of reality, but also like have a really naturalistic setting. And well, it just, the, the, the grotesqueness of it. Right. It's exactly. Hyper grounded. Right. It's like and, Tom Savini stuff. <laughs> and to add to your like point about like the kind of disingenuousness of the filmmaker coming at it from like an Italian, <laughs> you know, perspective uh, to the to Midwestern America, like uh, you got your your two leads, and I've said good things about them, but I also have to just like note, like yes, Timothy does the best he can, but like he's got the face and physique of like a New York rich boy, like he's not. <laughs> He's not a Virginian. He's not a Midwesterner. And and Taylor Russell, too. Like, she's Canadian. She does not. The, neither of them feel like they fit in this. They don't fit yeah. at all. No. Uh, and someone kept on saying, like, oh, if they're eating like 80,000 calories in the human body, like, they're not going to look like two, you know, heroin chic types. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it just doesn't. Yeah. But then I, they yeah. also eat like lots of other food. I don't know. That was. Yeah. Well, well, well. Then we have to. So I got curious. I got curious. <laughs> oh no! You didn't make a spreadsheet, Dan? Did you? I did not make a spreadsheet. I got curious though because I was like, mm, something doesn't feel. Something feels off to me, and I couldn't figure. Not off as in wrong, but like it didn't make sense that like here's this really cool arty movie based on this YA novel. Well, how is the novel number one and two? Who wrote it? What was their intention? So I went to go look that up, um, and it's a 2016 YA novel. Um, uh, and it's, it's fascinating because it's by, um, Camille de Angelis, Mm -hmm. uh, who's about our age. She's born in 1980. Um, but she, it turns out she is a pretty militant vegan, uh, and has been for like the last 11 years, a vegetarian for a good 20 years. Um, and so that's the one thing that I sort of, when I was reading reviews of the novel, there's this whole group of people who'd be like, yeah, it's okay, but it's basically a book about veganism. <laughs> right? And that's the whole thing. And then when you, when you, when you watch the movie, and that doesn't come through at all. No, no. Like, I, there's no sort of like vegan agenda in this movie, which sounds like there might be a little bit of that in the book. I mean, so the, the author self admits that she wants people to read it and become vegans. She said that in like a blog post. <laughs> but like, you don't get that in the movie. So there's almost like this, like this story has just been sort of hacked up, rearranged, digested, and spit out into something Ooh, different. good one. You've, you've had that locked and loaded, haven't you? God, it just comes to me naturally. <laughs> well, I mean, and that that's part of, the, you know, the, the tenuousness of the adaptation process, right? This is the same yes, guy yeah. that uh, helped Luca uh, remake Suspiria, and uh, I forget his name, David something, David K, another last name I'm not going to try to pronounce. Mm-hmm. Um, he... He definitely, like, there was, seems to be some 
intent and you get like once again a very surface level response uh kind of across the board from both the cast and luca in the press circuit interviews about what is this a metaphor for what is the metaphor (laughs) it's you know and i'm not saying like you have to have a movie that's strange and then therefore there has to be like a metaphor that you have to unpack like i'm the number one david lynch stand so i'm not going to argue that however Mm, (laughs) in this case i think it's i think you could argue that in this case in this case i think it's so like both in your face and like simplistic that there it it just like screams at you like what do i mean and there isn't an answer. <laughs> like yeah. the best, the best answer I saw that Luca gave, and he only gave it in one interview. I forget which one. Maybe s- not slant. Uh, um, uh, oh, of uh, Daily Beast. And I don't think this is a, a this is a good answer, but it's it's at least the most coherent and specific answer he gave that I found, where he said uh, he wanted. He's always wanted to find the balance and tension between character and place. Um, that's particularly relevant to this movie. Um, they do not have a place, uh, you, but they have the vastness of America and of the Midwest. It gets better. It gave me the idea of a place that has endearing, endearing beauty and suffering of communities that I can see were left behind by a very difficult system of economies. Oh, my. This is so, no, this is so... Okay. Like I love you. I love you, Europeans. You're great, but uh, <laughs> there's an in, there's a, an intellectual class in Europe that views America through such a specific lens. Yeah, it's usually yeah, like yeah. a Marxist lens, and it's like that's cool. I'm I'm fucking Marxist. I love that shit, but um, they have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. Like, when you start, like this is complete gibberish. Right. Well, it plays um, into your whole thing about like this complete uh, misunderstanding and just like mm-hmm. assumption of what this particular part of America is all about. And just like to, I mean, I was, I was thinking like halfway through the movie once I, not having halfway, like 20 minutes in, once you like figure out that it takes place in the eighties, cause it doesn't, even though it has like title cards for about every state they go in, it never explicitly says True, that, yeah. it, that it's the eighties. And so then just like when I figured that out, I was like, is this one of those things where they chose the eighties because they didn't want to have to deal with this whole cell phone thing and that's it. Or is it be, like, are they trying, is this about Reagan? Like, how yeah. <laughs> is this like, uh, is this, maybe it's like a homage to George Romero or something like day of the dead. Cause all that. Stuff <laughs> well, I, it, there's, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I even know what to do with it. It's, I mean, a, it's a mess. It's, it's a snow globe world, which I respect though, but like mm-hmm. it's easier. It's not, it's easier to do it like this where it's like, uh, kitchified like 1980s culture the, the weird thing about this is you watch this movie like you said and it doesn't explicitly state it it feels like it could have taken place in the early 2000s based on how people dress back then or people people dress now <laughs> like you know because yeah. constantly looking back in the 80s 70s all that kind of stuff um i i do respect that he wants to create a snow globe you know enduring beauty as he calls it world but like you know, there's a way to do that, and that's Wes Anderson. Call him up; he knows that he can do that in two seconds, right? Like he just can do that for like an American Express commercial, which he's asking for. Um, you know, and it, I Luca just it, it just feels wrong footed, you know the the whole thing, and it's um, it I don't know I think it's unfortunate because there's just so much that could have worked here that um, that doesn't, and then. You know, I think let's let's loop back to the metaphor because I think that's really important to getting at the heart of this movie and how it fits into this whole risque romance thing. How would you describe 
the it describes to me that you're i'm now the teacher you are uh an english student in ninth grade we're gonna swap roles here love it what's the central message of bones and all what do you think the metaphor of cannibalism is talking about well if <laughs> that's the thing is like i don't even i don't know necessarily about like cannibalism specifically uh i would have to chew on that for a while i'm just <laughs> oh my god we're gonna do this all day um all day. It's lovely but like and I think this was actually Taylor Russell said in an interview, and it's really the only thing that makes sense to me um, is uh, the you know the, the the concept of being an outsider, of being a nomad. Like that part, like really felt true. Like I almost would like this movie a lot more if it was just about like you know an a, a eighteen year old girl whose father deserted her, and she had to like find her way in the world and she comes across yeah. Timothy Chalamet like that. That's, that's a, not only a simpler expression of it, but like just that whole, the whole thing of like the cannibalism, because like you said, it's treated more like a zombie at least when it, yeah, it feels I like don't know, I, but it's, I don't know, but I don't know. Can you, you tell me now? So this is, this is okay. the ninth grader floundering in class discussion and the teacher <laughs> just takes over and says exactly what the metaphor is. Uh, it's a physical <laughs> embodiment of an emotional question. That's what Taylor Russell said. I'm just stealing. I'm doing like the, the author notes or whatever. Notes, like, Cliff notes, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what she says. It's a physical embodiment of an emotional question. Okay. Let's try and unpack this though. So they're eating other people. Okay. Is that like their emotional rage? Is this like a movie about mm. trauma? Um, yeah, because she's like, she's searching for her mom who also abandoned left her. Them, yeah. Right? She's like, has this rage of being different. Yeah. An outcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's not, but the, none of that really. Okay. Here's the, the, there's a moment where this movie has, I think had a chance to sort of, maybe say something better um, or more interesting is the moment that they kill or he kills, they both kill the carnival worker guy. Uh, mm-hmm. And they find out that he has a family and a kid and all this stuff. And there's sort of this guilt involved, but that just sort of dissipates later or right. pretty immediately. And I'm like, no, like that's, that's the moral question. The moral question of this movie should be, I have to eat people. Right. I yeah. think that it's wrong to hurt people. Um, how do I reconcile those two viewpoints? Yeah. And even though I disliked the Mark Rylance character and Mark Rylance in general, like at least there, that was, that was like a sliver, like a glimmer of something because, you know, he did that whole monologue about how he senses when somebody is about to die. And that's when, that's how he decides who's going to be yeah. his next meal. And it's, it's like, moral. there's a moral code there, right? He says that, yeah. like, I've got a code. Um, it's a dumb it's a dumb code for a pretty dumb movie, but it's like, at least there's, there was something being worked out there that just gets abandoned. But then his, I mean, spoiler, it should be pretty clear at this point, but then I think that was kind of the, the nail in the coffin for me in terms of like what I got out of this movie was uh, when Mark Rylance comes back for the big finale and there's it's so terrible it's it's just movie, i mean it ruins any goodwill that build up and it's just like yeah it how does it make any sense like i don't what yeah and then like he gets wait who gets hurt in this at the end and dies is it timothy or her? yeah and timothy does and then he, he says that. feed on me Spoiler and, alert, by the way yeah. um <laughs> yeah it's just like 
I don't know. It's just, it's so heavy handed, but there's nothing there to be heavy handed about. Right. And I think that's, I don't know. It's, it's a frustrating movie to me that the more I think about it, the kind of worse that it gets. And it's not like a terrible film. No, like you said, it's beautiful to look at. The music's lovely. The performances are solid. Uh, It's just, I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about her. So I think we should transition to her because for sure. That is a movie that I think we both saw when it came out, right? I imagine oh, yeah, we both totally. liked it when it came out. Actually, I don't think I saw it in the theaters, actually. I think I ended up, uh, because it came out right around the time my first son was born. Um, okay, yeah. So I had, to, I had to wait for home video. I believe I, this was a this was a classic Chris Redbox. A um, little DVD action? Oh, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah. So what, I mean, what'd you think on the first release? It's 10 years old now. Right, yeah. 10th anniversary. And, you know, I was... Uh, Definitely, like I, I like any uh, <laughs> white millennial, um, like enamored by Spike yeah. Jones in the two thousands, right? Like uh, I, I loved being John Malkovich, and so like I was just like ready because he had this was his fourth and still his only feature since, right? He's got yeah, he has, he's not done a movie since this, right? Other than the Jackass movies. Mine is blown because it where, where the wild things are in 2009, and then he did yeah. adaptation in 2002, and being John yeah. Malkovich. And this guy had like, I mean, obviously he's doing a thousand different things, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Like it's, it's just like, home run after on, home guy. run, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I was excited to see it. However, I greatly disliked at the time, and still kind of don't really love today. Joaquin Phoenix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that it was. Your mouth, huh? Yeah. And I don't think like, I, I think I like Scarlett Johansson more now and I liked her more before this movie, but I think right around that time too was still, was also just like, I don't know how much, how great of an actress she is, but I will say that coming out of this film, the one thing I remember is like, even though I still did not like Joaquin Phoenix and I wished it was somebody else in the lead role. Um, I really loved ScarJo's performance. Um, I think that uh, I didn't love the movie when I walked out of it, but I it left me like thinking and curious about the world and technology and relationships, and I think that's that was kind of his goal. Um, and he you know ended up winning an Oscar for it, best original screenplay. Oh, I didn't know that he won that. For yeah, he won way. that, and he he clearly was uncomfortable at the Oscars. I distinctly remember that. Like he kept his speech pretty short and and quiet, and. Uh, it just seems like it, of all the, of the four movies he he made, yes, this maybe was his, you know, because he worked so closely with Charlie Kaufman. And then he also worked very closely with Dave Eggers for the Where the Wild Things Are adaptation. Yeah. Um, so this was like his, you know, 100% his vision. Um, and I still, I don't know, something still rang difficult for me back then. And it still did a little bit today, though I think I like it better today i don't know you your turn what it, what's been your journey with her so her is part of my love is dead uh film series <laughs> that i watch every valentine's day uh, because so i'll give you the movies her was a, a more recent edition i believe okay blue valentine um, blue valentine is you start so here's what you do you start with blue valentine because that's the hardest one you got to get through that yeah, yeah. you get through that and then you watch probably her will be good as like a sort of come down chaser uh then you do eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and then you close it out with 500 days of summer because uh, you want to end on like kind of like a hopeful note you don't sure. want to like 
actually love yeah, his dad. Two, two good movies, two bad movies. I get it. No, all genius. All genius <laughs> movies. Um, so, yeah, when I saw this uh, come out, uh, I saw it in the theater, I believe. And uh, where was I? Oh, I was in New York? Yeah, I lived in New York. Yeah. Um, so I probably saw in some you know, art house theater there, uh, like I always wanted to do. And um, it hit me really hard, I think. I was like, oh, yeah, this, this feels accurate. This feels right. This is how I struggle with romance and love and all of those things. Um, you're trying to connect with people and it doesn't work. Uh, I was also dating a ton of people in New York. It's like just what people do there. You constantly go on dates with people. And um, yeah, it kind of, uh, it seemed very, uh, it hit home a lot in a lot of ways. Hmm. On the rewatch, um, it, it plays, a, it's, I still enjoyed it, but it seems way more complicated yeah. um, than when I first saw it. And I feel the same way about um like 500 days of summer as well. Like a movie right. that I loved when it came out, but now I watch it. And I'm like, wow, this is like, this is strange and problematic and complex right. in a way that I think, I don't think was intended by the author at all. No, no, that movie um, every enters the discourse like every year too. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's just like her doesn't though, for whatever reason, her, yeah, skates by. it just doesn't, I don't, I don't think younger people, what's strange about it too, is that it, it felt very, um, you know, prophetic, like it was really sort of seeing how things were going to play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was pretty accurate on some of those two points, like the whole AI thing and the other sort of stuff in Siri and whatever. Um, but that part of it, the technology angle obviously was just a way to talk about how human beings tried to connect with other people. And like Jones, he says this in all the interviews, he's like, yeah, the technology thing was cool and interesting, but it's really just a cipher for, or a platform to talk about how people find intimacy and romance and all those sort of things. And I think from that perspective, it's still, I think it still works. Um, it just has such a strange ending. Uh, and the final, you know, the final 20 minutes of it or whatever, when he finds out that, um, his AI is talking to all these other people and she's in love with like 600 other people. Um, it, I, I don't know what that's saying, right? Like that's, that part of it to me is sort of just confusing. I guess in my mind, as I'm rewriting the movie, I, I would sort of be like, well, why would it matter to him? You know what I mean? Like deep down, because if he's getting the fulfillment out of this interaction, I think an actual person would be like, yeah, who cares? I'm getting what I want. Out of it. <laughs> I, right? I, I think I have an answer for that. Go for um, it, yeah. Because I think th- out of all of the movie, the, the ending is what really resonated with me more this time than it did the first time 10 years right. ago. Um, and and once again i have to really try to like divorce my any negative feelings i have about joaquin from this answer honest after joker we can just call him a dirtbag okay thank you but and this is also the time period where where the whole like i'm still here thing is happening with casey affleck and spike jones is complicit in that too to be honest yikes um oh interesting okay interesting Yeah. yeah Um, because they're they're all fr- they're all like hanging out all the time together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that you know. Okay. Anyways, uh, that aside, the character of the- Theodore, right? Theo. Um, yeah, yeah. He, uh, in my mind, represents this kind of on the cusp uh, kind of generation where it's like, and that's I think maybe why it still resonates with like specifically our sector of like elder millennials because yeah. it's like that whole thing of like, we had a, a, a mostly technology free childhood 
but then yeah. adolescence, it was just like thrown into overdrive. Right. Yep. And, and I see that happening with his character in this film where it's like, you know, especially through, I mean, it's mostly through flashbacks because we don't actually see any real time, uh, ex- experience with him and his, his, uh, ex-wife, um, who and interesting and ends up being his r- actual wife in real life, Rooney Mara. Right. Um, they oh, had another married. Yeah, they, they had a, a son named River together, um, which is oh, like the, the only, yeah, the only cute thing about Joaquin Phoenix. And it, <laughs> God, I gotta stay away. Um, okay, so uh, he represents that that on the cusp and he gets drawn in. Like he, he has like these predilections, once again, to uh, be like drawn in and become obsessive over the technology that is cutting edge, that is taking over yeah. um the world and yet he still has these ingrained feelings of monogamy and we see that through the flashbacks too he's uh, not okay. right and yeah. uh, not to you know be glib about it but like there is like this element of maybe like hookup culture that is 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 being represented by the ais um where they have this kind of more openness like this is also around the time it was prophetic not only in terms of like technology but it was also prophetic in terms of like um lifestyles like uh open marriages became a lot more part of like mainstream understanding of how relationships can be polycules and all that stuff and and so like he is once again tormented by this inability to quote lock somebody down (laughs) <laughs> um, even when it's like literally a possession of his, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 Scarjo just says, "Fuck off! I'm <laughs> I'm gonna go be in love with 600 people, or like a uh, ghost with a physics professor. I can't remember who she falls in love with at the end of the day. Oh, yeah, uh, the, the, the philosopher. Yeah, yeah, the amalgamation of a dead philosopher. Yeah, um, th- that's a very that's a very strong point, and it's also kind of interesting when you say it like. Yeah, 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 like the elder millennial thing, because it is, if you think about it, like, think about how, like, boomers, like, uh, when they got Facebook, like, lost their minds, <laughs> right? It's like politics and photos. It's like, no, 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 no. You can't, like, share all this stuff online, but they didn't know what the hell they were doing. Right. Maybe it's the same, like, for, like, you know, you know, cuspers, Gen Xers, whatever, old millennials with, like, the romance relationship thing being online, because we didn't, you know, we never had that even in our like early twenties and mid twenties, like that wasn't really that prominent. Whereas now it's sort of like, well, yeah, of course you're going to, of course you're going to meet your, your spouse or partner online. That's just a given at this point Mm -hmm. for the most Mm -hmm. part. And I think for us, it, it it still feels like we're uh, maybe holding on to some old principles or ideas or morals or social norms um, where, yeah, it, 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 we're going to be very awkward, just like, you know, you know, someone's aunt is, you know, ranting about Trump or COVID on <laughs> Facebook. It's, I mean, it's like, like we're doing that version of that with romance and sort of online relationships and stuff like that. You know, that's funny about this. I, it brings up just a memory of mine. Uh, I was in Atlanta on Bumble, which is a dating app thing. And, um, this is not that long ago. This is like right before I moved. And I was, you know, going to date with the girl here and there. And one girl was like, oh, um, you know, I'm actually traveling for work. Do you want to do like a video thing? And I'm like, whoa, no, but like, I'll do it because like, I don't this know. Is, this was before COVID or during COVID? This is, this is 2021. So this is like the okay. later 2021. And so she like, actually, yeah, people are doing worked. a lot of video stuff. 
Yeah, anymore. she actually yeah. worked for the CDC. And no. she was, yeah, and because she was in Atlanta, and she was in like a foreign country training them how to do COVID stuff. Wow! And I had this video, and there's like morning where she's at, and like afternoon, it's like over in like South Pacific, and it was so awkward and bizarre. And I am not an awkward or bizarre person. If you meet me in person, you're a total stranger. I'll, I could be your friend in like five minutes. As one, I'm one of those types of people, right? And like. It was just like the strangest thing, but she was younger. She was probably like 32 or something like that. So like eight years younger than me. And it was just sort of like, I could feel it. It was this generational divide (laughs) where it was like, oh, like I don't really belong in that world. And like, you know, it's like one of those things where it's just so different. And I get the feeling that like that, and that's my, me where this movie doesn't ring as true to younger people. Right. Where it's just sort of like, well, well, obviously you're going to date, you know, you're going to have Samantha, you're going to have another, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying in terms because I don't know young people that well, but like, it feels like the world has changed so much in the last decade mm-hmm. that like this movie maybe has a little bit of a less sort of um, cultural richness to it or something. It just doesn't maybe speak to them as well. But yeah, I think I'd it's a decent movie. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I—I'm <laughs> uh, curious now to like add it to my uh, my romance unit at uh, for film studies in high school because I think that it would be very interesting to see if, in particular, like the whole tension um, with the Olivia Wilde character that he goes out on a date with while yeah. he is falling for Samantha, oh and my then God. I thought that was so insulting. That whole, <laughs> that was so weird, dude. Yeah, it's it, so weird, and and also like the the relationship that actually hit me harder this time than um, Theo and Samantha was uh, Amy Adams' character and Theo. And yeah. okay. I com- I had completely like that is like one of those things that I that actually does feel universal, not specific to any generation. This concept of you know, and there's also this wholesomeness to it, right? And it, uh, once again, like I think that Spike Jones does manage to um, balance that pretty well. Like these two are just like, like they, yeah, they they had some kind of history in college or whatever, but like they're platonic friends, and they truly care for each other. And mm-hmm. that that final shot of them after both of their AI partners have left them for this whatever. It, digital orgy in the sky have, <laughs> are, are, are just sitting side by side um yeah. with without without access to technology like on it's the rooftop cute. yeah it's super cute which i didn't love <laughs> <laughs> i just thought that come on like the movie there's a oh man i don't know now that i'm thinking about it more this movie this is a lot of problems this movie that, that you're right it is very wholesome and cute but like you the leave it wild sequence it felt very strange to me. Um, and then the Rooney Mara stuff. Uh, no, didn't work for you. It just, it kind of feels sexist. I mean, uh, it just, yeah, and I bring yeah. that up. I, this is all set up by the way. Uh, I bring that up because in this vulture article that came out when the movie came out, they interviewed Spike Jones and it's crazy how this movie kind of came to be. It's actually based on this photograph 
um, of this uh, photographer, Todd Heido from, I think he's from Ohio, I think. Um, he has a photograph called 2563. And it is the image of a young woman looking away from the camera in, in like a forest. And all you see is like the back of her head. And apparently, like as he was conceptualizing this movie, he kept going back to this picture over and over again. And he would write like a post-it note and put it on the picture. This is like a big picture in his house. And then he finally, uh, after doing this multiple times, he lands up with a post-it note that just says her on it. And you're just mm. like, you think about that and you're like, oh, that makes so much more sense in this movie because, look, it is a male gaze movie. 100% a male gaze movie. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make it a terrible piece of art or anything like that, or it doesn't even make it a bad piece of art. Um, but it, it, it does have this sort of locked-in syndrome where everything is coming from Theo, Spike yeah. Jones, yeah. Uh, his perspective in like the way that we see the women is sort of just like, I don't know. That's, I think that's the thing that doesn't play because back then I probably had the same viewpoint. hundred percent. Right. right. Yeah. Like I just, you know, I was one of those guys is just like overly romantic, maybe put women on a pedestal. And then when they don't do what you want them to do, you're oh, they're terrible, you know, that whole thing. Um, and now we you know with age and stuff like that, I kind of don't have that viewpoint anymore. And so that's where it's, I think there's a little bit of a separation now between the movie where it's sort of like, oh, this doesn't feel as poignant as I thought it did. Right. Um, no, that makes sense. You know, it's interesting. We, we, this comes up a lot in the show because uh, what I found in my research, um, Spike Jones said to uh, SBS, which is like the Australian uh, CNN, um, he said to them, the initial spark was an article I saw online 10 years ago where you could have an in- instant message with an artificial intelligence. Oh, interesting. So, a smarter child for anybody that also shares the, you know, AOL. Uh, instant messenger days which was you know, you know that that whole thing like the same kind of thing like you were mentioning with uh, you know the novelty of talking to siri or talking to alexa um uh but you know a typed out version um so like and he he went on to say uh that he didn't think of it for a long time and then i had this idea of a man having a relationship with a thing like that a fully formed consciousness and what would happen um i use that as a way to write a relationship movie and love story and i think that's kind of I mean, you bring t- a completely fair point about um, the the male gaze aspect of this, and I do have like a couple moments that I think of. For instance, that when he meets up to finally to sign the divorce papers um, with Rooney Mara's character, uh, where it just feels like, oh my, we we are so like in his brain. Yeah. Um, but I do think that like that's kind of one of the things where <clears throat> I don't know, Spike Jones also is really good at and has and what and you know uh did this i think very well in a very different context but in the where the wild things are movie um where like even the even the most innocent and pure characters have this kind of disgruntled jadedness to them and even like the outwardly jaded disgruntled characters have this kind of innocence to them i'm thinking of also that scene of uh them on the double date i'm putting using air quotes with uh Chris oh, yeah. Pratt's character and the girlfriend where it's like, yeah. there are these like, like it's supposed to, I think there's an intention there to be to, for us to like question, like what is going on with like this kind of uh, relationship building fake versus genuine, this kind of power dynamic of, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, 
I don't know. It's 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 a it's a curio from a time, and I think that it it, it would yeah. be fascinating to hear some of these perspective um, that's uh, that's younger uh, seeing oh, yeah. a movie I mean, like this for the first time. The thing about a movie like this is like, yeah, there's male gaze, but it's it's a complicated. It's not like. Mm. It's not like the ugly truth or whatever the hell that movie was with, uh, you know, I'm talking about. <laughs> Gerard uh, Butler. I'm not, yeah, Gerard Butler and uh, Catherine Heigl. Um, there, yeah, there's so many different, like, he's an intellectual guy and he's trying to sort of wrestle. He wrote, like, a, a musing on technology and romance and love. And it's like, it's his perspective and that's it is, it is what it is. And, right. like, that's how mm-hmm. we engage with it in the discourse. It's sort of, it's a guy's perspective. Um, and how he thought this was all going to play out yeah. and his viewpoint of love and all that kind of stuff. So it's definitely so, worth, in, you know, investing. so is, uh, I mean, I haven't seen it. Is Jexy the more feminist version of her? <laughs> Jexy, which I have seen. Oh, um, you have seen? Oh God. I've seen Jexy. Are you kidding me? Uh, it's not like a month ago. A terrible movie. Oh, oh God. It's a bad. looks so bad. bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's some, there's, there's definitely some meat on the bone with hey, uh, her. full circle um bones and all maybe in maybe in time people go back to it and certain things i doubt it though <laughs> will the metaphor reveal itself <laughs> yeah over time like maybe like generation alpha where the hell they're called when they're like under 10 years old or whatever um <laughs> uh, oh my gosh okay i have to say this before we close out i just sure. googled for the first time bones and all metaphor and the first result <laughs> Is uh the is Luca G once again say, giving another answer, saying mm. that he used the familiar horror element of cannibalism as a metaphor for those fighting with addiction, obsession, and a search for identity. What? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh my god! I don't um, know. Where do we? Um, so we're scary romance. Let's think about this in, in broad terms here. First of all, any new movies from the the ones that we watched that we love? I think you mentioned Taste of Honey. Yeah. Right. That was, I think that, both of us really loved that movie. And My Beautiful um, Laundrette was another big find. Also great because yeah. I'd never even heard of that movie before. Yeah. That was really great. Um, you love Harold and Maude, but you've always loved Harold and Maude. True. True. Um, Badlands to me is like, oh, God, Terry Malick, man. There's something <laughs> about that guy. He's like, uh, I don't know how you, that was such a tightrope walk, that whole movie. Oh, I know. Um, Valley Girl kind of went down in my book a little bit because oh, really? I remember it being. I mean, it was, which it, I have a weird view with it now. It's like before I was like, oh, it's an 80s movie. But now I'm looking at it's like, oh, this is like a hyper indie movie. And then <laughs> yeah. I view it through like a different lens. But like it just, yeah, it's a very sort of interesting take on Romeo and Juliet. Um, it's also Secretary. I mean, mm-hmm. which we, we both have a very in, intertwined history with. Yep. Um, <laughs> that like, I don't know, man. I completely flipped my view in that movie. Right. Same, um, yeah. Last time I saw Brooke McMahon's still kind of the same. Lolita. Oh my god! Um, not good. No, it's, not, I'm so, like, is that sacrilegious? Are we allowed to say that? We're no, get, like, it's, it's hands it's, down Kubrick's worst film. It's not uh, a good movie. I don't know why would anybody think that's a good. I don't know, man. It's, it's. I think. I mean, maybe it's the. It's interesting that we had this kind of inverse with the first and last episodes, the oldest and the newest film. Lolita was like you know this grand work of literature, unadaptable that was attempted to be adapted by an auteur, and Bones and All is this like throwaway <laughs> YA book that is <laughs> attempted to be adapted by an auteur. Um, it, it's a mess both ways. Um, I will say you were you were a uh, mid move. Uh, um, when I did uh, the solo show oh, with yeah. Bound, Lillian, yeah. Bound, that's the that's the best movie of this whole series. That really, 
uh, I came across and I had, you know, had was interested in seeing it for a long time, but never really pulled the trigger. And it's just, it's an incredible film. And I, yeah. I just can't get over, um, how much like that film, which seemed to be like a throwaway, like ba- a barely thriller, right? That's right, how I viewed it right. growing up. It's like, oh yeah, it's like something on front Skinamax or whatever. Yeah, no, but it's it's a. I mean, the Wachowskis with all for all their, uh, you know, flaws over the years, they they know how to make something indelible. And I don't love all their work, but uh, I think I like Bound even better than the first Matrix. Now, I, I interesting. I really recommend anybody who hasn't seen it to check what it out. Po- did Poison Ivy hold on? Oh no, that's that's just straight trash. Um, <laughs> it, it, interesting up. trash, but yeah, and and yeah, I mean, I think oh, that's the Brokeback's so good. And that, I think I have to reiterate something from the first uh, episode, which is that you know we had this kind of divide in the series, right, where it's like the movies were risque romance as a genre because like the actual relationships were risque considering sure, who the characters yeah. were and the time period. But then also like the whole, like, you know, voyeur aspect of it too, where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, movies like broke back and my beautiful laundrette and, uh, it, it, the, there's nothing like inherently wrong with the relationships in those movies, morally, legally, otherwise, uh, maybe legally in some places, but, yeah. Yeah. but, it just it, it feels like we ha- still have like such an intertwined connection between like movies where it's like oh that's a controversial movie and it's just because they're gay versus like they're that's a controversial movie because yeah. like he's literally grooming a teenager like that's a very super good point because like <laughs> like thinking about um that's why I was like sort of this is a tough um cycled because it was very hard to define what the hell we were talking about half the time <laughs> um like what was scary what does that mean and like even romance remember we had an argument about whether lolita is a romance movie or not right right because right? it, it was a it big was, thing it was but a horror it, movie yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah it is it is interesting how some of these movies like i, I would put secretary in, in this sort of lot where um it was risque because of how they choose to express their love Right. And right. the public perception of exactly. that style yeah. of expression. Yeah. But now I think sexual mores have changed so much that right. like secretary right. seems kind of tame. You know, I'm just thinking yeah. of like the proposition of like pornography over the last 20 years. It's like, yeah, secretary <laughs> is like, you know, like a PG 13 movie almost. Um, <laughs> and well, then, and that's the well, only thing is like they, they, we, now we've, we've gotten so far to the other side that in order to make something stand out as risque, you have to have literally cannibals falling in love with each other <laughs> and eating, like eating full body, eating Mark Rylance on screen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, didn't I even, mean, it's, we didn't even mention the, uh, the, the scene with Michael Stolberg and David Gordon Green of all people, which uh, man, I could, that could be a whole nother hour show. I, know. I still don't get that scene. I don't that get it. Weird it. scene. I don't get it. I just don't get it anything about it uh, also throughout we could have lumped in the crying game in this true uh, cycle same thing that you're kind of mentioning um you know risque in the time for for that you know the relationship that goes on on that but the movie itself treats it normally right treats this sort of just like it just matter of fact be- my beautiful laundrette the same way mm-hmm. yes a movie about two men who are you know have a romantic relationship with each other but like within the context of the movie it's just what they do right There's and no, it's like, like it's, it. it's yeah it's like the sea story to this other these yeah. other two stories about class and really race fascinating yeah. really fascinating movie um do we want to tease tease yeah, michael 
Let's do it. We got it pretty much mapped out, but we. Uh, um, I'm missing a movie. I don't you're, know miss, do. you're missing a pick, and uh, I'm, I'm still considering swapping a couple of mine. The terminal. Um, the terminal. Yeah. No, yeah. No, it, the, the first. Terminal. We finally hit a Spielberg movie, and it's the fucking terminal. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, worst Spielberg movie. <laughs> Never seen it. Uh, I can't wait. Oh my god, it's it's not. Well, it's okay. Um, it with with. Stranger than fiction is, I think, is what we're going to go with on this one. And it's going to yes. be movies that are sort of, we haven't really like sort of landed on the bullseye, but like movies about true stories or inspired by true stories um, that kind of, that kind of run with it. Uh, and we have <laughs> Cocaine Bear. I think we're going to do it like the new one first, probably, right? And then yeah, kind of yeah. Go backwards. Uh, so that's probably going to be the first movie is Cocaine Bear, which is coming out late February. Uh, but yeah, that'll be, what is that? I think we're in season 10, by the way. Woo! Uh, season 10 of Film Trace. So if you Incredible. have been listening, we appreciate you listening uh, and love your support. And, you know, check us out wherever. We're getting a lot of people on YouTube. Check us out on YouTube. Loving it on there. Um, any closing thoughts, Chris? I'll leave it to you. Oh, man. I think we just need to say, like, uh, uh, we, we're, I think we're trying to bite off more than we can chew by going from risque romance movies to movies that are about things that you wouldn't believe to be true, but are, and it'll be really difficult to uh, reconcile uh, the main argument, which in my <laughs> in my belief is going to be uh, that movies maybe should not uh, dramatize real events. Oh, well, that's a, that's a crazy argument. Uh, but that is, <laughs> listen to season 10 of Film Trace. There's your tease. Uh, thanks, everybody. This has been Film Trace. Film Trace.